Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are we are learning about investing. Warren Buffett style. <laughs> that is what we're doing. But it's expanding, and we find as we go deeper into this, it's expanding to really being looking at, into how people think and how people behave and why we do what we do and lots of kinds of things, sort of. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, I think my experience over the last, gosh, I don't even know how long at this point, more than a year, um, has been that this style of investing, this value investing, or what are we calling it? Deep value investing? Yeah, I think that's deep value is right. We're we're very focused or focused value investing. Warren Buffett style Focused value investing. Warren Buffett style, where you buy only... A few companies and you know all sorts of things about them and you think that they're awesome. <laughs> and yes. this is my encapsulation of rule number one investing. You think that they're awesome and you're certain that they're going to go up. Yes. At some point. They <clears throat> might go down, but eventually they're going to go up. Yes. And what I've found is that you're right. It has made me think about, for lack of a better term, the world around me in a different way, in a way of like, oh, look at all of these corporations, these companies, these people who are making things around me. And like, do I want to be part of that? Whereas before it felt very separate from me. Right. And now it feels a bit like I could be part of it. I can just buy in if I want to. If I think that what they're doing is good, I can support them. And that's pretty cool. I I, I love that. And then I love the next level of that or the the parallel level of that, which is that when I go into a Whole Foods and I own Whole Foods stock, I sort of am, am taking personal pride in knowing that I'm an owner of this company and these people are in this store and they're doing this cool stuff. And by yeah. the same token, it sort of really irritates me if I own a piece of a company and people who are involved and in interactive with the, the public are not carrying the brand well, you know? It ticks yeah. me off. It's like, yeah. I, want, I want to say, do you, do you understand? I'm an owner of this business. You guys, I care about this. I care how you're acting. And I'm really excited about how you're acting or I'm not excited. Like when I'm on Delta Airlines, I fly Delta a lot and I am an owner of Delta stock. I feel really personally proud of these people who are flying these airplanes. And I like look the captain in the eye and say, Really appreciate that flight. And I'm thinking, as an owner of your business, <laughs> I really appreciate the great job you guys are doing. And it's just like, wow. I mean, it would sound so dumb if I said it, right? So I don't say it. But I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. It. And I remember thinking that United was doing pretty well. And I was kind of excited about their CEO recently, but not so much anymore. And I see that the CEO of United is being denied his previously agreed upon chairmanship of the company. He is. He which is. is, yes, first step to you're fired. And I'm telling you, man, he needs to be fired. That was a top-down decision that put his people in an impossible situation. And it's come yeah. back and burned the brand for literally hundreds of millions of dollars before this is, smoke is cleared here. Yeah, I mean, the extraordinary thing to me about that incident, and it was so enraging to me, and I'm not usually much of a news junkie, but that incident I read so much about because it was just like, we've all, 
we've all been there. You know, we've all been in that terrible, powerless, frustrating situation with an airline. And, uh, and for those people to do that, and then for the CEO to write an internal email to his employees saying that they had done the right thing. Right. I cannot get over that. I cannot that, get over that. That is somebody who made a wrong decision, who knows he made a wrong decision, and who has to back his employees for doing what he told them to do. What, yeah, that's right. What else is he going to say? You know, you screwed up. He can't say that because they did exactly what he told them to do. No, well, yes, they did. But I'll tell you what he should have said. He should have said, we had the wrong policies in place. Exactly. This is crazy. Exactly. You guys did the best you could. You did the wrong thing. People, people screw up, remember? Talk about behavioral economics and psychology of investing. People screw up. Well, talk about they, leadership. Hey, leadership, right? Yeah. Leadership infantry style, the leadership course I went to, is like you take the bullet first. You're you're the lieutenant leading this charge. You're not you're not standing behind there saying the buck stops here, but not really. You right. are the you got that you're the last person in line for whatever's good. Food, rest, everything. You're last because you have to take care of your people first. This guy effectively, he didn't throw his people under the bus, but you're 100% right. They knew they screwed up, but they screwed up because he told them to do that. And they got That's right. they're bearing the I mean, can you imagine these people know they're personally responsible for a medical doctor having his teeth knocked out? It's having his jaw broken or cheek broken, damage to his face. Like And I'm sure they did that because if they hadn't gotten that those people, not that guy in particular, but those four people off the airplane, if they hadn't made those four seats become free so that the airline personnel could have flown on that flight. They probably would have been fired. They would have been because fired. Because of those internal United policies. Of course. Of and you're course. exactly right. It goes up to the CEO. And you're exactly right that the moment that CEO does not take personal responsibility for bad policies is the moment you're dealing with someone whose lack of integrity just showed through when under pressure. And I've taught you this your entire life that in like your character is revealed through adversity. That's where we everybody finds out what a person's values really are. It's not what they say they are. It's what they do under adversity. And so yeah. this guy under maybe the worst adversity of his life folded up like a an inexpensive fan and just collapsed and just you know looking for a way out, looking for a way out instead of yeah. saying that policy was so badly thought through. I take full responsibility. The buck stops here. I am now going to resign to because that's the only appropriate thing to do. I'm going to resign. We'll we'll work on making a good transition to the next person, but I, I'm falling on my sword here because I hurt somebody. And that guy's going to sue United for a lot of money. And then, you know, the next thing happens. And I'm so sorry to you people who had to deal with this personally for the police who came in and, and hurt this guy because they thought they had to get him off the plane right now and he wasn't cooperating to the yep. to everybody who to the trauma to the people on the plane you know my apologies it was all my fault I fall on my sword that's how someone with integrity should do it and that's not what we see in America almost ever 
We, no. we, we, we have a bunch of mercenaries, people who say they're good people, and I'm sure they're good people in the general sense that they're not down there, you know, robbing banks, but in the sense of, are you a good leader? Oh, hell no. That, that leadership, I don't know what they're teaching at Harvard Business School or Columbia Business School or anywhere else, but they're not, they're not producing leaders. They're producing managers who are mercenaries. That's what's coming out of those schools of these elite schools. I'm not thinking we need it. We need some serious changes. And the only way that's going to happen is if you guys who are listening to this broadcast start to take your money under your own control. When you start to do yeah. that and you start to vote your money against these kinds of people where you can write a letter to United and say, I am pulling my money out of this company because of this guy and the way he dealt with this. Um, and by the way, we'll see what the board does, right? We'll see what the board does here. Yeah, we will. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Dad, we're agreeing so much. No, it's, it's weird. wild. This is great. Um, well, when we get into values, we are going to agree a lot because you're you're very, very, you're a person with a huge amount of integrity and you always have been your whole life. You always, you know, have tried to hold me to a higher standard, I think, sometimes that I could possibly do. But, <laughs> you know, that's always a good thing. And well, you live at a very high standard of integrity. So does your sister. So does your mom. I mean, that. That's just something you've grown up with. And, and uh, I got to tell you, it's a really powerful thing. So when you start talking from a position of values, um, what we could almost call values investing, right? Not value investing, which is about price and value, yeah. And, and, yeah. right? Price versus what it's worth. Values investing is about putting your money where your mouth is and putting your mouth where your values are. Right. That's a yeah. different. I like, I like that. Maybe we should start calling it values, values. And it doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way. No. And also it's used by other people. Oh. Other people. Yeah. I think like, you know, somebody has a values fund that's all about social engineering and somebody else has, you know, a book out on it. And none of it's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about us defining what people's values should be. Right. I'm not saying that uh, we have a values fund. So, you know, you invest with us because we are good people. We know the right values. Yeah, we're good. Everybody else is bad. Right. No, no that's not we're what not we're saying. We're not saying here. that. No. What are we well, saying? I have... <laughs> we're saying choose your own. I mean, you don't even have to. We all know what our own values are and put your money. This is what I think anyway. Put your money in companies that are taking active steps in the world to further those values. And I know that that sounds weird sometimes when we're talking about for-profit giant corporations, but there are if you dig, there are a lot of them that are doing good stuff. There are some that are not, but there are a lot of them that are. And I think, I mean, we as a group, we meaning small, normal, single people investors, like not funds, we as a group control 85% of the money in the stock market, which is an crazy number. Now, we don't do it directly. That 85% is not controlled directly. It's through our pension funds and our 401ks, but it's our money. And if we actually controlled it, I mean, it would change the entire market. I mean, it's like voting for president, you know? People who don't vote say, oh, you know, my vote doesn't matter. And then, you know, somebody wins by uh, 3,000 votes in Florida or something, you know? And let's, yeah, let's go your one vote step, matters one and your money deeper. matters. One step deeper is that the people who are voting our money, 
may even have exactly the same values as we do. They may. I mean, that's not impossible. Let's just say it's true. You have your money in the California Teachers Pension Fund. The California Teachers Pension Fund is managed by, oh my God, you know, it's managed by one main manager, but then it goes out to dozens, if not hundreds of of other managers who then are actively managing the money in many different ways. But let's say magically, this all matches your values perfectly. Here's a real killer. And I I don't know if we even really talked about this a lot, but the 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 way those guys are judged on how they're doing with the money that you give them is oh, yeah. very you know, short term. And you've yeah. taught me something on this podcast, Danielle, that I'm now teaching in our classes. I don't know if I've told you What's about that? This. What's that? That is that I, I was always maintaining that the, the, the fund managers who are, who are investing through modern portfolio theory are simply behaving irrationally. And you argued back that they're not behaving irrationally. They're behaving rationally when they sell off on the short term for some big problem that's happening, that that's rational from where they sit. And I started digging into that, and I found out you were right, that the very nature of their employment depends on a relatively short timeline. It, it's one quarter or maybe two quarters or at really at best maybe a year where you can lag the market and lag your peer group. But after that, you're gone and the next guy's coming up. And it isn't that they're mm. failing to be logical from their point of view. They're, they're doing the right thing from their point of view. But because they have to operate on a short-term basis, they are in an impossible position when it comes to actually investing properly. They are in the position actually of speculating on the momentum of the companies that they choose that they're going to be into now for the next 90 days or 80 days or 60 days. And then they're going to shift to a new industry or a new momentum and a new one and a new one in order to keep up with their peer group. Otherwise they're fired. Hmm. And that yeah. difference of incentive is not built into modern portfolio theory. Hmm. That's why modern portfolio theory is of the belief that you know people are all all going to operate in a rational way. Well, a rational way means in buying a business that you understand the long term cash flow of the business, and you are discounting that back to a current value of the business, and you are looking at whether that's a good deal right now, and you operate on that basis. These guys, they they can't do that. Your fund manager cannot sit. I mean, he can, but he's he's not going to be successful long term. He's, well, he's not yeah, going to be successful timing, short term is what I should well, say. Well, timing the market is really hard and almost impossible. Well, timing the market is really hard and almost impossible if you're trying to beat the market. But if all you're trying to do is shadow the market, if what you need to do is stay close. Oh, I see. So what you're saying is that they're not actually trying to beat the market. They're... Uh, selling based on short-term views is is just trying to stick with it it's trying to stick with their peer group and 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 ultimately if you're really good at it you might beat them and the market but what they found is those that skill set that being quicker to the draw um as the market's moving one way or another or industries are moving one way or the other that skill set doesn't seem to hold long it like you might have two or three or four good years but you almost never have five which is why the Morningstar five-star mutual funds are a great place to go to find out which mutual funds are going to be the worst ones for the next five years. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's t 
care of it all. <laughs> because their fund managers have been have been really aggressive and have been guessing right and making the right calls and there it goes up and better than the market but it doesn't last and that's why 96% of fund managers and pension fund managers fail to beat the market over a long period of time because mm-hmm. that momentum ultimately levels you out it levels you out well i appreciate you saying that i was right about that yeah it's really it's a brilliant insight so brilliant get this that the nobel prize winners did not see it all right now let's be real here again we were real about the other thing let's be real i'm sure they saw it but it did not figure into their calculation they well if they what they're trying it, to do was create an overall theory of the market, not a theory of what happens if people might be fired if they have their fund go down in the next quarter. Well, put it like this. It never occurred to them that people might act in a, in a way that benefits them personally, even if it hurts their investment results in the long run. That never occurred to them, and which, by the way, is why Danny Kahneman got the Nobel Prize in 2010 for these concepts that say that really smart people will operate because they're anchored to something that isn't necessarily something rational. They're Hmm. anchored into things that make, I say they, I mean all of us, we're human. Yeah. Okay. So let's um, describe what, what, what you're talking about there. And I also wanted to just mention uh, an earlier thought when you were talking about feeling like you were the owner of an airline or of Whole Foods um, that I mentioned I wanted to talk about non-voting shares, which is a huge difference between buying a company with voting shares and buying a company with non-voting shares and how you feel as an owner. Um I'll just mention quickly that they exist and a number of really good companies actually have shares that have different voting rights. And um, and this issue came to the forefront because Snap went public recently and offered completely non-voting shares. And um, actually Berkshire Hathaway has shares that have a very low number of votes in one class compared to another class that has a much higher number of votes per share. And, um, and I just want to throw out, we can talk about it more later, but throw out, be aware of this. It's really important when you're buying a company to act as an owner, that you actually be an owner and that you realize what kind of voting power you're buying in that company. You might be buying none. And if you're okay with that, you know, we can talk about various perspectives on that. But um, just just note that that's something to look at when you're buying stock. Well, we can leave it there on that one. Okay, you want to leave it there? Because I've got some no, thoughts can, on that. Oh, well, do you want to talk about that or behavioral economics? Well, let's right talk now, about that right now, just real briefly, because I think you've, you've raised an issue that's, I'm a little torn about this issue. I am too, frankly. I mean, as an attorney, it's a real issue around, I'm a startup attorney, it's a real issue around startups. And the whole point of, so to get into non-voting shares or or different classes of shares that have different voting rights the whole point is to obviously provide certain people, usually a small number of certain people, often founders of a company, control that their number of shares would not otherwise afford them. And the point of that is that 
often, particularly with startups, that company is very identified with that founder or that group of founders. And people who are investors in the company don't want that company without those people running it. And so they agree to those kinds of structures for good reasons. I mean, these are not stupid people agreeing to these sorts of corporate structures. The problem comes when those people either leave the company or are no longer doing the kind of job that everyone thought they would. And that's where you start running into this problem of, I call it the who gets to fire who problem. Because when you, in corporate law, at the end of the day, when you get down to a real corporate problem that you can't solve, the, the question always shows up. You get the phone call, can I fire this person? And you have to go, well, no. <laughs> they, they can fire you. They can fire you. You can't fire them. And that's a huge issue. So, And that's the crux of it. Who can fire who? Who can fire who? So let's go back to a couple of examples. Steve Jobs got booted out of Apple. Had they had two classes of stock, Jobs would have never been, been in that position of getting fired by his own CEO. Yep, he wouldn't have been able to be fired. And it turned out, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty in this case, that that, that group of people, the, the venture capital group and the CEO, who basically threw out their founder because he was a hard guy to work with and they didn't, he was a young guy, he didn't have business experience, they threw out the baby and kept the bathwater. And yep. that just about took the company down completely all the way. So when Jobs came back, he saved Apple, Okay. So here's an example of why you would want that kind. You would want that kind of stock. All right. Now we've got um, Under Armour with Scott Plank, who's the founder of Under Armour, who has created these two classes of stock so that he will not lose control as the company goes out and brings in more capital. Now, the question is, is, is Scott Steve Jobs or not? Right. Because right. now he's got control and the shareholders no longer can fire him. He, he really, I, well, maybe a group of, of people in that I mean, there are, there are ways and I, yeah, I don't know the details of the Under Armour um, dual class of stock, but I, I, I'm sure he could somehow conceivably be fired, but right. I think it would be difficult. Then you've got the founder of Lululemon. That's uh, Mark, um, can't remember his last name. But he he did not have two classes of stock. Had he had two classes of stock, they couldn't have fired him. And and the, the new CEO of Lululemon, I'm sure he's a great guy, Tom Shoes, all that good stuff. And he has not been able to figure out how to move that company to the next level. It's sort of just Yeah, I think I think she's a woman, actually. I don't, but, no, it's a guy. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um yeah, you're exactly right. And and that I think I'll give you another more vague, like sort of less exciting example, which is just that I um, I read an article about a study that was done of companies with two classes of stock, the the ones with with more voting shares and the ones with fewer voting shares, and companies overall. And we're not talking about companies we all know. We're talking about just small family run, often like small cap kind of stocks. They tend to do less well, actually, in the market overall compared to companies that have uh, equal voting rights across their classes. And I mean, you can think of the reasons for that, right? So what the reasons they cited in the article that they found were stuff like 
It's family run. They all are cronies. They eventually start piling debt into the company to finance whatever they want to finance. The company goes down. They don't really care at the end of the day. And shareholders are the ones that bear the brunt. And shareholders have no control because of the voting rights. I thought you so, were just making a fabulous description of your typical mercenary CEO that owns, owns none of the company. Sounded exactly like what these guys do to companies that are, you know. Well, mercenary CEOs don't tend to have special voting rights coming in no. as a later CEO. But they do exactly what you just described all the time. They don't need the voting rights. They've got the board controlled. They, they basically have all of their cronies on the board. And the, the shares are spread across a million shareholders, and nobody has any, any power to remove the board. And what they do to really screw you is they stagger the board election dates. So every yeah. year at every board meeting, one or two board members come up for election. But at no time do all seven board members come up for election, which means it would take four or five years of, of steady activist voting to get rid of the board. And it's just not going to happen. So it's an amazing little scheme that these guys have to protect themselves from having the board removed. And that's the, their version of founder stock, you know? Yeah, all right. I mean, I would. those people tend to, to get fired, though, after a while, yeah. as opposed to a company where they truly have absolute power. And it's almost impossible to get rid of them because of the different voting rights. Well, you're making a really, really good point. There's a company I like a lot called Calmain Foods that does eggs, and its founders and family members have been running it for a couple of generations now. I mean, it goes back, I think, to the late 1950s when it started. So they're a couple of generations into it, and it's a very, very well-run company. But you have to ask yourself, as an owner or a share, a partial owner of this business, you know, when is the next generation going to come on that wrecks it? I mean, that's a really yeah. good question. Uh, do they have dual classes of stock? Do you know? No, they don't. I don't think. So the Ford Motor Company is one that does. And that's how the Ford family has stayed in power at Ford. I actually wondered before how they, I figured it was just tradition that they had had a Ford running that company. It's not. It's full on voting rights. Well, OK, and here's what you get. You get the Edsel some year. And then, uh, which is this disastrous car they, they built in the 50s, and a, okay. and a kind of a classic screwed up car. It's it, it an iconic, it, it's, it's basically a cautionary tale for all car makers. And then you have Ford of 2008, which was the one car company that did not need the federal government to save it. Yeah, I mean, America. I'm not citing that as a negative example. I'm just saying that's a company that yeah. has dual classes of stock, and that is how the family has stayed in control of their company. So as we started this out saying we're of two minds, and I really am, I mean, I yeah. think there's something really fantastic and beautiful about a family company that stays in the family that cannot be taken over by outsiders unless chosen by the family right. that is meant to be passed down and I have mean, just, that. Just on that, it's, it's like you, because you know, you can't be taken over by outsiders. You can, you can think about the future 10 years down the road. Right. Yeah. You can have right? a much more long-term perspective. Much more long-term perspective. You don't care what, I mean, you might care, but you you don't have to be forced to be a quarter by quarter by quarter by quarter 
CEO who's responding. And you know the family's got their money wrapped up in this company, so you don't have to pillage the company for your compensation. You don't have to have the CEO making $25 million just because he wants to or she wants to. The company, you know, the vast majority of stock and therefore the vast wealth of your family is all wrapped up in that stock price, not in your salary. And so you can think long-term, you can implement long-term plans, and that's exactly what what companies like Calmain and Ford have done very, very well. And which, on the other hand, if you don't have that kind of protection, you 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 have three or four years where the stock's not moving because you're implementing long-term plans, and an activist hedge fund can come in, mm-hmm. start buying up your stock, get control of the board, and throw you out. And that's the end. And that's the end. Then you're yeah. done. Now, that might you're, be good well, for the... Yeah, you're, it might be good for the company. Who knows? But yeah, the family's rich, no longer going to be running it. The family's it. no yeah. longer running it. And that may not be... And you've be... lost your legacy. Exactly. And so you see this argument going on with hedge fund managers. You've got guys like Warren Buffett who abhor activist investors. Um, well, and who, as I mentioned, set up two classes of stock in his own company. So well, it... yeah, but that, that's a little bit different story, honestly. Um, the Buffett two classes came about because his one class of stock, which he would never split, um, became so expensive that the 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 run of the mill investor couldn't buy any. It's a, you know well over a hundred thousand dollars a share back at those days. It's now over mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty thousand a share, and so the, the the normal investor who wanted to to participate in Berkshire Hathaway could not buy stock. So what some clever people did on Wall Street, they're eminently clever, is they started buying the big shares, $150,000, $100,000 a share, and then they would sell shares of the shares. And Buffett was like- shares of, Oh, shares of the shares. Yeah. They would, <laughs> that took me a minute. <laughs> they'd create mutual funds, essentially, around that stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. Buffett went, whoa, 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 whoa. That's defeating the whole purpose and now you're speculating on me and I and no no. All right, we'll just create another class of stock and it'll be one fifteen hundredth of the voting power of the A shares. So you uh he had a different different purpose to that. I mean, obviously my comment to that is you can split your stock. Well, no, but because well, from his point of view, no. And the reason Why not? Well, because he wanted it to not trade. So right. he got caught. He didn't want it to trade. A stock that doesn't trade a lot has a lot of owners that don't care about the short term. That's what Buffett wanted in Berkshire. He wanted people that think like he and Charlie think, get, you know, put your money in here and forget about it for the next 10 or 20 years. And we will manage it safely and, and it, with integrity and we will grow it. We don't want you moving in and out of it so that you are scaring other people. We don't want investors to be nervous about the future of their stock. So if it didn't trade much, it wouldn't have a lot of volatility up and down. You know, it wouldn't move up but and down 50%. That hasn't been what's happened, No, though. it isn't what happened. I mean, like the two, A and B, right, is what they're called, I yeah, think. Yeah. And the A shares and the B shares pretty much moved the same. Well, there's a reason for that, too. It's There's actual market forces going on. So if an A share were, it's not magic. It doesn't just sort of happen. If an A share, let's say, were to go up by 10% and the B shares didn't go up 10%, then Then, arbitrators would jump in and and they would buy one side and sell the other. 
and they would drive or they would just buy the B shares and they would drive those prices up until they were equivalent to the A shares. And so anytime there's a disparity in a market price of gold, let's say in a European market versus a Japanese market, an American market, that disparity in price gets changed very quickly by arbiters who jump in and buy the cheap one and or sell the expensive one. It makes sense. Um, I mean, the result is that the company Berkshire Hathaway has two classes of stock with different voting rights and they move (laughs) roughly the the same. The voting rights are the same. The voting rights are the same. It's just that you don't get as big. You'd have to buy 1500 B shares to have the same voting power as an A share. There's no way that it's a one-to-one correlation. No, it's not. One to 1500. No, I'm saying if you buy $250,000 worth of B shares, there's no way you end up with the exact same number of votes as buying one share of the A shares. Pretty close, I think. We're going to get some I'm comments on this. this. We'll get yes. comments on this one. We'll see who we'll see who's right about that. Now but, I want to know about this. Now I really I want to go to the like Buffett meeting. I mean, it's definitely he it was definitely him making sure that nobody was going to mess with his ownership like that was part of it you know maybe you don't i mean maybe i'm completely wrong i haven't actually investigated the the b share voting rights i'm not sure they even have any you might they be do. right they, oh, they do. do yeah yeah i did a little research on this i was very interested in non-voting shares um they do it's like something like one four hundredth compared to the other one or something like oh, that. Really? It's, it's very low. But they do have them. The reason that this became an issue is that index funds... Okay, so let me back up. So what happened is that Snap, Snapchat, Snap, um, put their IPO forth and had completely non-voting class of stock. And that was very unusual. There are these other companies, as I've mentioned, that have different classes of stock with different voting rights, but they have voting rights technically. Whereas Snapchat had one that has one, has offered one that has no voting rights whatsoever. Hmm. And I just find that to be sort of a fascinating intellectual exercise as a potential investor of like, what actually am I going for here with a purchase like this? If I'm trying to be, okay, so here are the options. You're an owner with some control. You know, whether or not you use it is definitely part of that equation, and most of us won't. Or you're just along for the ride, and you are investing in order to get a return, and any sort of control is out of your hands, and you're fine with that. And, you know, I'm uh, I'm really, I'm a little bit torn between whether or not that's a good or bad thing. And I'm starting to think it might just be company specific, management specific, share style specific. I'm not sure. What do you think? I think that it is absolutely management specific. I think that for for our situation with a very, very small number of shares, we're not going to influence anybody's decision about anything as an individual. Um, but as a group, if all of us started in managing our own money, then of course we would have an enormous amount of control. We would have, as you've said, you know, we would have a tremendous percentage of the shares of the stock. Um, and then if we could, if we could mobilize that kind of control, we could then become activist group. In other words, somebody like you might 
raise a big issue with a company they really like, like a Lululemon, and go about trying to get the former founder fired for his value set. You could absolutely do that. Um, I mean, that's the thing, right? We all think, well, it's fine as long as it's all going along fine. Oh, I don't really need any control. I'm not really going to go to any of the shareholder meetings. I'm not going to vote. And then something bad happens. And all of a sudden, everyone starts reading the fine print really quickly, wondering, who can they fire? Yeah. (laughs) Who can they fire? Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought it like that, but that's really what it boils down to. But I think at the end of the day, we have the ability to exit. And that is an important power. That That's true, we too. Also, That's a great point. We basically can veto you as a company. You're not doing what we think is a good idea. We don't have to own you. I do not have to become activist. I just go look for something else. Yeah, that's a great point. You know? We vote and with our feet. We vote with our feet. Exactly what we do. And so if you're in a minority position, in fact, you know, just to extend that, um, that's essentially the original idea of the United States. And it's essentially kind of what's <laughs> happening in Europe right now is oh that by, by removing the boundaries of nations from, from people being able to cross the borders really easily, um, you have made the minority able to vote with their feet, which is really a powerful thing. If, if you cannot get your ideas across in a democratic process in the state that you live in, you have the right to vote with your feet and go to another place. And this, of course, doesn't exist necessarily between countries. You can't just go to Canada and become a citizen. So it, it's, a, it's a very powerful thing that we don't think about a great deal. Um, we sort of take it for granted in the United States. And, and Well, I think we don't think about it in the markets because uh, us, us, like me, our little personages are so, are so small. Nobody notices. If I vote with my feet and I sell my shares, right. you know, nobody and cares. So it doesn't it doesn't feel like anything. Nobody cares That's until why. there's 50,000 of you voting with your feet yeah. all at the same time. And then they care a lot. So it's lot. so frustrating. I, I guess part of me wants to be able to to, you know, raise hell if somebody starts to wreck a company that I know is a wonderful company. And part of me wants to protect founders like Steve Jobs from having to deal with with uh, pirates that are coming in to just pillage the company. So we'll have yeah. to leave. Well, I don't have a right answer for this. I no, think, I think, and I think that's the answer. Management I think, specific. I think also just be aware of it. Right on. I mean, I actually didn't know, I, I, and I'm even a lawyer and I didn't really pay much attention to having different classes with different voting. I just sort of, you know, whatever you get what you get. What? But now I've really now I've really thought about it and I think it's just an important thing to add to our investing checklist. You know, what voting rights do those shares have? Very true. Very true. And you know, how do you like the management team? So yeah, yeah. let's uh, So let's talk about the behavioral economic stuff next time. How about that? Okay, we definitely gotta gotta chat about what that means to us as investors. Behavioral economics. Okay, definitely. I know it sounds so fancy. Yeah, very fancy. But it's not really. Okay. (laughs) Until then, time to go play, guys. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, 
as our lawyers want me to say. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.